Hello everyone out there in listener land. This is Dave, and I just wanted to make a quick announcement before the start of this week's episode. Uh, Number one, I hope all of you are staying safe and healthy out there in Corona world. Um, I know things really, really suck right now, and hopefully this podcast is serving as something of a distraction to all of that. But um, yeah, so the reason for this announcement is that uh, myself and Drew did this episode on Nosferatu, and like the responsible people we are, we practiced social distancing and recorded this episode remotely, but then after we were finished, tragedy struck, and we lost our main version of the recording. Fortunately, we had a backup recorded over Skype, but the audio quality is not up to the usual standard for this podcast, so I just wanted to give a little bit of a heads up that the sound on this particular episode is a little bit rough, but I still thought the conversation was great and a lot of fun. I still wanted to put it out there, so just giving this quick heads up that uh, it's going to sound a little wonky, but I think it's worth it. So that being the case, once again, I hope everyone out there is doing well, being safe, staying healthy, and hopefully you will enjoy this week's episode, Nosferatu with Drew. All right, enjoy. This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Hello, and welcome to Better Late Than Never. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. This is a movie podcast where sometimes I get a friend to check out a movie from a genre, era, or creator that I don't normally watch but want to explore more. This week, I'm going to be watching a movie that I've never seen before, and that is... Nosferatu from 1922. This movie is from a genre that's a blind spot for me, and I want to explore it some more. That genre being old movies, in particular uh, silent era films. And to do that this week, I am joined by podcast stalwart Drew. Drew, how's it going? (laughs) It's going great. Oh yeah, how's uh, how's life in quarantine? Uh, it's you know about as scary as I imagine this movie might be. Oh come on, you don't think it's going to be terrifying? The movie or uh, the future of this quarantine? <laughs> Either. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, who's to say <laughs> on both, which is why I compare them. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so we are, um, because of the uh, disease-ravaged nature of the world right now, recording this remotely, but, um, you know, we're going to make it work because we're tech-savvy millennials. Damn right. Goddamn right. But um, this movie is, in fact, from an era long before millennials ever existed, long before Skype existed or any podcasts existed. Shudder the thought. It's from the 20s. Our our baby boomer parents weren't even born when this film was created. Nary a twinkle in their parents' eye. I know. This is by far the oldest movie we've ever done. I'm kind of excited for it, actually. Me too. Mm. So had you heard of this film before, Drew? Yes. Yes, I, I had. I take it you kind of have a general idea of what it's about? I do. Yep. What, Drew, what do you think a Nosferatu is? So I think Nosferatu is uh, the name of a certain uh, primordial vampire. Um, it is... Uh, I think Nosferatu is a proper noun, but uh, yeah, essentially it's it's a vampire. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's your deal with vampires, Drew? Are you into vampire shit? Um, moderately, I'd say uh, I'm certainly not the the wildest vampire fan out there. Um, you know, I really liked True Blood which okay. I felt like was a great uh, modern uh, vampire portrayal. But the, you know, Dracula seems a little blasé to me, I'll say. Have uh, you I'm read not, it? Uh, I guess I haven't read Dracula, so that's it's not completely fair. But my, my impression of Dracula is a sort of vanilla horror character, not, not as compelling as some of the others out there. Hmm. Hmm, okay. So you're more of a werewolf guy. Yeah, I like I like werewolves. Uh when I vampires mean, fight werewolves, do you root for the werewolves? Wow, that's a really good question. Um what what is that uh film series where where it's all about the the werewolves versus the vampires? There's more than one, believe it or not, cuz that's a common face-off, but uh I think you're thinking of Underworld. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, in that series, I feel like I feel like I'm on the vampire side in that series. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're getting a little off topic, but just to keep up with this vampires thing, um, I really like vampires and I'm super into vampires from from being a kid, you know. And so when that battle happens, I tend to side with them just because I also think they're cooler, more interesting monsters and like if you were going to become one of them obviously you're going vampire over werewolf i think but those whenever that fight seems to happen the vampires usually wind up being huge dicks like they're the the rich assholes they're the arrogant ones yeah the the, the werewolves uh they managed to triumph based on sheer heart and uh grit you know they're a little bit less pretentious yeah. So they win the day based on, you know... I mean, there's some good vamps usually, but they're usually the aristocratic jerks. But anyway, um, yeah, so 
Uh, I like vampires. You know, I was super into Buffy as a kid. Were you a, were you a Buffy guy? Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't so much into Buffy. Ah. I know. All right. To go back to your question about uh, werewolves versus vampires generally, actually, I'm probably more interested in vampire lore uh, as a baseline. Yeah. Nice. Me too. Yeah, I had a big book, book of the all the vampire myths as a kid, so I was always up on all, like, you know, what are their, like, traditional, like, signs and weaknesses and, you know, all that all that stuff. They're they're interesting across cultures. There's some things that are similar, some things that change. For instance, there's one culture where vampires supposedly only had one nostril. Interesting. Is yeah, that you, uh, the Nos in Nosferatu? Does that come into play here? Uh, well, we'll find out because I, I honestly don't know. But um, that that brings us to Nosferatu. What do you uh, what do you think you know about this movie? Okay, so um, we've already revealed that it's a 1922 film. Mm-hmm. I know from looking, uh, you know, a little spoiler research tells me that it's in the public domain from being so old. Um, I know that it's a black and white film. I'm pretty certain that the Nosferatu vampire is played by a famous horror actor named Bella Lugosi. Okay. Um, and... Uh, uh, you mentioned that it was a silent film and that, that I had that impression as well, that, uh, this is a movie, but not a talkie. Mm-hmm. So we may be looking at subtitles. Um, those are the things that I'm pretty sure I know about the film. I have predictions beyond that, but, uh, oh, I, I well, no, I guess I can also say with some confidence, I think I know what Bella Lugosi's, uh, uh, Nosferatu vampire looks like because I think I've I've seen uh, film clips from this quite a quite a many times portraying that character. And what is what does that look? So we're we're looking. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of vampire portrayals, but I feel like uh, uh, Bela Lugosi's Nosferatu is this really archetypal uh, vampire. He's uh, bald, has pointy ears, sharp teeth, very long uh, fingers and fingernails. Uh, he wears uh, kind of this black cloak. So a very stark-looking vampire, almost more so than any any other portrayal I've seen. I feel like the, the contrast with most, most of the other interpretations of a vampire are, um, you know, the modern takes are to show vampires as like sexy. Humans, sexy humans in disguise really like you, you know you wouldn't know that this is this is someone other than a you know kind of like a a hip ultra intelligent uh you know nightlife type person that you're you're drawn to mm-hmm. right that's kind of more they're the, seductive they're seductive you know this is more a uh okay this is this is a straight up ghoul yeah you know? prim- a more primordial monster Yes, I feel like we we're going to. I mean, this might get into more of a prediction, but I feel like I've also seen portrayals of the Nosferatu, you know, famously rising out of a coffin. Or I think we're going to see him in the crypt setting, as far as where he where he kind of lives and haunts. So, I've also not seen this, 
Uh, and at this point, I have done background research on it, but as is tradition, when I haven't seen the film, I wrote down all of my predictions ahead of time so that they weren't influenced by that. But I had seen not this movie, but there is a movie about the making of this movie called Shadow of the Vampire. Uh-huh. And um, the plot of it is basically, it has um, John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe, and the plot of it is that in making the movie, it wasn't fake. Uh, the film crew had actually stumbled across a real vampire, and they decided to film him. Oh. Yeah, it's a cool cool concept, right? Yeah. Um, so I've seen that. It was a long time ago, though, so I only have kind of vague memories of it. But uh, I do have, you know, there's some influence taken from that. So my memory about the look of the guy uh, mirrors yours. He's, you know, pale and monstrous. He's got the sharp teeth and the the weird clawed hands and, you know, matches exactly what you laid out and is, is clearly inhuman. Yeah. Nothing seductive about him. In terms, do you have any idea who directed the film? No, I can't say that I do. Okay. I should because I saw the film and I, I know the name of someone associated with it and at, when I was writing the predictions I could not for the life of me remember if it was the name of the director or the star so I'll throw it out and that's Max Shrek so that's what I had I'm pretty confident in Bella Lugosi being the the star so I, I, I think my guess is that that's the director's name right on right on now you started getting into some some good predictions. I liked the one you had of the specific shot of the vampire kind of like rising up from the, like from a coffin, very like stiff as a board kind of like coming straight up out of it. Yes. I think, I think we'll get that. I also, so yeah, I think it'll be a silent movie. I don't think it'll be like subtitles though. I think it'll be in like that silent movie way where it's like they speak and then it cuts to like an interstitial of the dialogue. Oh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but and also all the acting is going to be like super theatrical. Right, a lot know. of body language, a lot yeah, of Yeah, very exaggerated. exaggerated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um and, and you know, it'll have that big bold symphonic music all over the place. You know, you know, you know that kind of stuff. A lot of piano. Oh yeah, a lot of strings. Yep. Yep. Oh, um, the, the vampire's name. So what I, I believe the plot is going to kind of be is that you get some, it's going to match Dracula a little bit in that you get, um, some people in what is to them a foreign country and they come across, uh, a, 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 an aristocrat's home. And that guy's name is Count Orlock. I, I am confident that Count Orlock is the name of our, our vampire. Okay. And he is a, clearly a monster man. And yet, despite the fact that he is obviously a monster, all of our regular people 
they live in a world where there are no vampires and they don't they don't look take one look at him and think oh this is clearly a vampire monster we're dealing with we should get the fuck out of here so they They're just, just thinking this is a weird looking guy right so they stupidly stick around for too long and it takes them way too long to get wise to the fact that they're dealing with a monster man now keep um, in mind there were no dracula movies or anything like that existing at this time so you got to give them cut them a little slack right I, mean, I guess but you know dracula had been published so it did exist as a book okay and there had of course been lots of mythology about vampires at that point so i feel but like how literate are these people you know I, I i guess but even without the specific vampire thing is i think you know if it was us we'd take one look at a person who looked like this and be like, ooh, we should not stick around. Particularly if, as I am guessing, people start dying around you for weird, unexplainable reasons. Right, right. Although maybe then again, you know, it's just his physical appearance. Maybe that would just be rude. Right, exactly. Yeah, you'd, you'd feel like, oh, I don't want to judge this person just because they were born ugly. That's that's wrong of me. Just because he looks a little different, all of a sudden you're blaming him for the bizarre rash of deaths that has suddenly started happening. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, I think he will. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he'll have some of the, the classic vampire weaknesses. So I think he'll have no sunlight. Right. Not um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I wonder will they I don't know if the humans will win at the end. Do you think the humans are going to win? Oh, that's a really good question. Um I'm going to guess yes just for the sake of us being on opposing uh sides of this uh prediction. Okay. Well, I I don't I don't even know if I have a call though. I I'm not sure who's going to win. I think if they do it will be through the classic stake through the heart. Yeah, um, that 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 would seem to make sense. But other than that, I think that's about all I've got for what I predict is going to happen in this movie. I do know it's um you know part of um it, it's part of German expressionism, so it's going to have that kind of like dark gothic sinister look to it visually yes but uh i i think that's about all that i have as something that i knew or could guess was going to happen in this film so do you have anything more you want to get down on uh digital paper before we actually yeah. watch this thing yeah a couple of things um you know i uh I feel like I have a similar sense of the overall plot and setting as what you just described. I'm going to guess that our setting is um, what I had jotted down in advance here was a Latvian or similar Eastern European country town setting. Mm -hmm. So rural, uh, rural, but um, you know, the, the, the vampire uh, himself may occupy uh, the crypt it may occupy some estate where there is a crypt. I do have a, a a visual of you know the 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 scene that I'm describing of him rising from the crypt. You know he's all by himself. There's it's it's very stark. We can see that it's taking place in a large crypt. Um, I seem to have this scene in my mind. You know my my sense also another prediction is that. I believe this 
I saw that this film was roughly 90 minutes long, maybe a little shorter than that. My guess is, you know, in classic fashion of a film from this time, that the pacing is going to be fairly slow, and also that um, it'll be at least past the 30-minute mark before there is a reveal that that this person is a vampire. Um, mm. I think we're going to see that there are, leading up to that, mysterious signs. It'll be slow. We'll kind of get more of a sense of a normal rural country society taking place, and then some slight weird things are happening, and then they build on one another. We have missing townsfolk, you know, and and that starts the compound until we get this reveal somewhere after the 30 minute mark and maybe closer to the the middle point of the film. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right that it's going to have that sort of Dracula-esque thing where it's like Count Orlock, you know, he's like he's a rich mysterious uh aristocrat who like, you know, his there's the town but then his estate is sort of like a little bit out of town and the townspeople yes. are all kind of like, oh, yeah, we don't go there. You know, right. well, I'm also, you know, we know we know the plot of Dracula pretty well is that I'm kind of also questioning how present this Count Orlock is going to be in the first act. Is it, you know, is will he be even more distant than that? Hmm. OK. And I guess the only other prediction I have here is uh, that uh, along with the slow pace, we're going to have very um, artistically framed shots visually. I think, yeah. you know, film-wise, um, I, I have a pretty high expectation going in. Um, Me too. Uh, I'm, 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 you know, given the reputation of this film and given how it's lasted so long, I sort of have the sense that at least visually this should be pretty interesting and cool to look at. This is like the, like when I think of, when I think of the horror genre, this is like movie number one, like in the series of horror movies that have been created. This is like the first film that in my mind, this is the oldest film I can, I can list as a horror film in, in the genre. Same. It's one of the probably the oldest films in terms of its date, where I know the date that I could even name, period. I mean, I know there's like uh, Trip to the Moon. Right. That was even earlier, wasn't it? That black and white one with the I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But uh, this is one of, you know, 1922 is about as old as I can go where I'm, I'm certain about what the date on it is. And it's, you know, uh, a full on movie. Yeah. Yeah. So this this is going to be interesting. Uh, uh, you know, this is part of why I wanted to check this one out, because I don't normally watch silent movies and this kind of thing. So I'm very curious if this holds up. Is this going to be an entertaining watch? Right. Or will it be so uh, outdated that, wow, we, we can't even uh, enjoy it? You know, that's the other extreme. Yeah. Well, let's let's go find out. Amen. All right, cool. Well, we will be back for part two after we watch Nosferatu. We will see you then. This is the part where we're watching the movie. 
Awesome movie. Something like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, so we literally just finished watching this film and um, we watched um, what uh, they, it's available for free on YouTube because mm-hmm. as you said, it's, um, it's, it's no longer, subject to copyright so it's freely available so we watched that together with each other over available over the phone to comment as as much as we wanted together while watching and boy did it generate a lot of commentary there was tons i mean uh there's some regret i mean uh, midway through we kind of noted that this would have been a great thing to capture sort of uh mystery science theater 3000 style where we recorded the entire session with our comments over the the film. And as we said, this is a silent film. So it lent itself really well to that because there was no, uh, you know, dialogue soundtrack competing with our comments. So that was fun. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but well, nonetheless, I, I highly enjoyed that little watch sesh we just had. Yeah. Whether or not that applies to the movie specifically well, we'll get to that. So, all right. Um, a little bit of background about the film. So, as I mentioned in part one, this movie was made in the early 1920s. Uh, Dracula, the book Dracula by Bram Stoker, had come out by then. That was published in 1897. This was an unauthorized adaptation of that story. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of similarities in plot and substance to the actual Dracula story. One thing, though, that does not carry over is uh, in terms of the cast. Drew, you did predict that the star of this movie would be Bela Lugosi. Not correct. No, Bela Lugosi is the star of the movie adaptation of the book Dracula. What so year Bela Lugosi that, is uh, Dracula. What year was um, that movie made? Oh, um, it was made after this, but I will look that up for you. Hang on. Uh, that came out in 1931. Wow. Yeah. Also incredibly well-known and influential, obviously, in terms of its like look and style. And it's, you know, one of those like classic golden age of Hollywood monster movies, right? But it's one where Dracula is much more in the style where we were talking about where he's more human and more aristocratic and seductive. Yeah. And, you know, but Bill Lugosi Lugosi is much more the like, welcome to Count Dracula's castle. You know, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. The classic. Yep. Whereas, this one, he, he, in Nosferatu, Count Orlog did indeed turn out to be more on the monstrous side. So, though, this being an unauthorized adaptation of Dracula, uh, this movie ran afoul of the copyright holders of Dracula. Oh. So, yes. 
I'll just read what I found online verbatim, basically. The release of this movie would be the only one by the studio Prana Film because the company declared itself bankrupt in order to avoid paying damages to Bram Stoker's estate after the estate won a copyright infringement lawsuit. Apart from awarding damages, the court ordered also all existing prints of the film to be destroyed. Wow. However, yeah, right? One copy had already been distributed globally. This print, which had been duplicated time and again, but uh, gained a cult following over the years and has made Nosferatu an early example of a cult film. Wow. Yeah. One print survived. That, and it's like, that an, it's an illegal insane. bootleg. Yeah, that's crazy. In the 20s. Right? That's the so 1920s. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Like, how did... It's like, how not even like passing around survive? a tape. It's like... How did it, how did it circulate? What? Come to my, like, secret bootleg screening at this, like, music hall I would have had to rent with this orchestra I'd have to hire. Yeah. Wow. (coughs) That's fascinating. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. So that was a cool thing I learned while researching this. So the director of this was named F.W. Murnau, which is a pseudonym. He was born Friedrich Wilhelm Plump. Um, Sounds German. He is German. Kind of a rich kid growing up. He was into directing little plays at his family villa while he was a kid. Um, he fought in World War I, and he actually became a pilot eventually. Kind of an interesting life here. He flew missions during the First World War, survived multiple crashes, which included some severe injuries, was eventually captured after landing in Switzerland, and he got involved in the theater group formed in his POW camp and wrote a film script there. Oh. Yeah. He emigrated to Hollywood in 1926, and uh, this is really his most famous film. And the only other thing about him was that um, it's it said on his bio page, as is portrayed in the movie Shadow of the Vampire, he is said to have been very uh, icy, imperious, and obsessed with film. Interesting. Yeah. What did you think of the directing, just sort of like as a quick response to that specifically? Yeah, so comparing it to my uh, expectations going in, you know, I was explicit that I had a very high expectation of the directing visually, um, you know, since it it would be a silent film. I kind of had this idea of like an every frame a painting kind of uh, execution, right? Um, I have to say I was really disappointed with that, um, you know, uh, beyond, you know, the the framing of the shots was okay, but I felt like um, you had this vignette effect and, and uh, cutting from scene to scene, there was kind of a, a gratuitous use of this uh, circular uh, cutaway the, the irising in and out. Yes, yes, that I wasn't a huge fan of that, but uh, you know, you heard me commenting about this throughout. My biggest 
my biggest uh, gripe with the directing was the the use of lighting and the the fact that scenes that were supposed to be happening at night were not obviously at night and and i can't i can't excuse the film's ability to achieve that because they did have one scene where there was obvious night and they had a lamp lighting and otherwise dark scene where they did achieve a good like dark night and like ambiance and otherwise the scenes that were supposedly taking place at midnight they looked like they were shot in the day yeah it did happen repeatedly in the film that we had no idea when things were happening or we thought it was during the day and then it turned out to be like midnight and like like basically the first scene where count warlock shows up we're like oh it's the middle of the afternoon i guess the sunlight allergy is out the window but then it turned out it's nighttime, and we're like, oh, it's nighttime? But it You're look- right. There, it didn't look like it, no. And and the lighting was kind of a problem like that. It was impossible to tell what time of day it was supposed to be because of the light. Um, as you alluded to, my kind of immediate excuse for that would have been that, like, just given the time, it would have been maybe difficult for them to you know, technologically have the ability to shoot in darkness such that it was clear enough what time of day it was. But then we did get that scene later that you talked about where it was very dark and then, you know, you little lamp, you got that good contrast in the amount of light that there was and it was clearly the middle of the night whereas other scenes, you know, is in the middle of the afternoon and it's like, yeah, you can say like, oh, well, it's just like the light of the full moon, perhaps. But then, you know, there's never a cut to a moon showing that it was moonlight or anything right. like that. So Right, and yeah. I feel like they might have had opportunities to have a lot more shots that were just more dark and use candlelight. I mean, give us give us some sense that, that it's nighttime. Yeah, I mean, you know, my guess is that maybe, like, shooting that darkened scene was very hard or expensive. But I think they could have, without it costing more and without necessarily changing the amount of light they were using, just um, do something to establish what the source of the light was right. so that we could have known, you know, like, again, just a quick shot of the moon or, you know, a shot of, like, someone lighting candles or a clock. Just, like, at least tell us what time of day it is because I kept getting right. confused as, like, when we were. Yes. Um Yeah. I will say, so, in looking this up, I mentioned that this film is considered a classic of German Expressionist cinema, yeah. and I wanted to do a quick little skim of that. So, are you much familiar with that artistic movement? I'm not. German Expressionism is a creative movement that started before World War I, but it really peaked in the 1920s, uh, particularly in Berlin. And it's kind of um, maybe a little bit epitomized by that, you know, kind of like Weimar Republic cabaret style. Mm -hmm. It was uh, something that really touched pretty much every single creative field. So definitely the fine arts, cinema, sculpture, but also things like dance, architecture, 
other fields where uh, if you had any kind of creative input, this was something that it affected. So in film particularly, uh, what I found was the first expressionist films made up for a lack of lavish budgets by using set designs with wildly non-realistic, geometrically absurd angles, along with designs painted on walls and floors to represent light, shadows, and objects. Mm. The plots and stories of the expressionist films often dealt with madness, insanity, betrayal, and other intellectual topics triggered by the experiences of World War I as opposed to the standard action adventure and romantic films of the time. And we so we saw that here a bunch, yeah. And other examples of this would be movies like Metropolis or The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Ah, this had an influence on a lot of directors like Alfred Hitchcock was someone who was very influenced by expressionism, but where I think we in particular could see some of the influences of that even to today would be in someone like Tim Burton. Mm. There are plenty of shots um, or uh, plenty of uh, design elements in this film, uh, particularly Count Orlock's castle that we can talk about, that you look at it and you're just like, well, that's just so Tim Burton-esque. Yes. I mean, really, Tim Burton has just got German expressionist influences, but, you know. Sure, yeah. We, we, we see it the other way, just by, you know, by dint of what we saw first. But, yeah, so that's what's going on there. So, you know, you can fault the lighting all you want, but the movie had style. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so for the cast, um, again, not Bela Lugosi, Drew, I'm sorry. It, and the director was not this guy. Max Schreck was Count Orlock. Yes. What did you think of this guy? Oh, man. I mean, look, I can't fault the actor's portrayal of the character. I think it was... You know, everything that everything that I expected it might be, but yeah, the directing didn't uh, live up to what I hoped it might achieve. You know, we did get that shot where he's rising out of the coffin, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of his portrayal had to do with the with the uh, the makeup. And uh, it was doing a lot of the work. It was doing a lot of the work as far as his his physical appearance. And uh, yeah, I guess he did a fine job otherwise in in portraying this character. Sure. I mean, he he, he came off as creepy as you wanted him to. Yeah. And I mean, you know, his movements were very, you know, creepy as well. Just unnatural. Kind of weird and stiff. Yeah, and as unnatural and exaggerated as all the rest of the acting in the movie was, his stood apart as, you know, unnatural in a different way. Yes. Um, So speaking of unnatural theatrical acting, I'll throw out just a few of the other actors' names just to mention them. We have Gustav von Wangenheim as Thomas Hutter and Greta Schroeder as Ellen Hutter, Alexander Granick as Nock. They were kind of our biggest characters in the rest of the movie. What did you think of them? And and the acting as a whole, because we talked about, you know, what we thought the silent acting was going to be like, and it kind of lived up to what I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, the Hutters gave us your classic, uh, (laughs) 
you know, over-dramatized physical acting uh, to portray their emotions. They were very dramatic very at theatrical. pretty much every turn, right? And I have to say, I uh, I really enjoyed our uh, uh, Knock character. I he he was uh, the zaniest in terms of his, uh, you know, he was the perfect kind of, uh, you know, the classic mad acolyte of the Nosferatu. And um, I, you know, as far as what you mentioned of the German expressionists and, and uh, exploring the kind of psychological facet of a, of a, uh, of a story, you know, his character gave us the best uh, dive into that. We saw him become mad. He, we had yeah, this he was, he was really... like the Renfield. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I really, um, again, I don't, I feel like it was a little on the nose and a little, uh, you know, over overwrought. I will say I found, um, for the two Hutters anyway, uh, I did find them to be particularly amusing in that old, old timey acting way, particularly when a uh, Hutter was scared. He had that very like, Whoa! kind yeah, of like fear. Yeah. And then, uh, Ellen, the, his wife, she had that like old school, uh, feminine quality of everything was overwhelming to her. Or not old school feminine quality, but old school portrayal of feminine quality. Oh, the fainting where, and the and the yeah, everything just sleepwalking and the oh, oh man, sleepwalking was the classic like arms straight out, stiff, yeah, like walking, yeah. But and, and, but then also just like everything was always like oh, I've yes. taken faint. You know, it's like you know, women back then would just faint at the drop of a hat. Drew, I don't know mm-hmm. if you knew. I mean, yeah. I can tell just from watching this film, you know. It's, yeah, it's, that's why they had fainting back. couches everywhere. They needed them. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, and then it was, her it was uh, her gesture of, of literally grabbing her breast when she was uh, frightened. It wasn't just her. A bunch of people, uh, the men, too, when they got scared, didn't, didn't go. Like, I, I feel like now we would put our hands to our hearts in the center of our chest, but they would actually kind of, like, grab the peck. Right. And actually, like, grab it. Yes. You know, like, not, not touch, but, like, Like you're groping grip. boob. It's not... Yeah. It's not just, like, yeah. Is that just a German thing? Do they still do that in Germany? I couldn't Is that the sign it. of distress? You, you just, like, squeeze your boob. Yep. Hey, if you're with someone else, you know, it's a perfect excuse to, uh, cop a feel, you know? Well, you're supposed to do it to yourself, I think. Yeah, well, I was scared. What can... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I can't blame me. I was afraid. <laughs> well, if we have any German listeners, please let us know if that's still normal to do in Germany. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so um, let's talk about the plot. So the movie starts, and I, I was pretty stoked on this in the beginning just because it, it, it was awesome in that old-timey way. Like, the music rules. It was definitely that, like, very over-the-top orchestral music i eventually started to have a problem with it but at least at first i was digging it yeah and then we get uh nosferatu a symphony of horror symphony being the right word too yes this was literally what was uh on the screen and then a rather long credit sequence i guess just because they had to give people enough time to be able to read everything 
Yeah. We've seen longer, though, you know? Yes, but I I guess it was just long in terms of, like, how long they were holding the shot just of a list of people's names. Yeah. Like, that took a while. But, you know, I guess uh, people didn't really know how to read so good back then, I'm assuming. So they needed to give them a long time to be able to, yeah. to read it. And also everything was written in that incredibly ornate, heavily serifed calligraphy that they had. So it took a lot longer to parse what the letters were. Oh, yes. So we also discovered that this movie has been broken up into acts, uh, five acts like a Shakespeare play. And yep. so we get Act 1, which is in this Borg. Um, the first thing I noticed about this town is that, you know, unlike what I was expecting for a German expressionist film, it looks normal. Normal yeah. town. Yeah, pretty normal people. Strong. Yeah, and we meet our two leads, which is uh, Hutter and his wife Ellen and their adorable cat. They're in love. He even picked her some flowers. Which she had a very macabre reaction to. Yeah, what did she say about them? She she pretty much, her her immediate reaction was to point out that they're dead. And why would you bring yeah. these dead things? Why did you kill them? Right. Yeah. And I, I was like, know. oh. Like, every man brings their woman flowers. Come on. What's your problem? Yeah, well, it's because she has to do some foreshadowing, Drew. That's her problem. That's that's exactly it. Yep. I think he's yeah, including uh, more foreshadowing. He's out for his morning constitutional and runs into an older friend who immediately says to him uh, the very bizarre out of context line. Not so fast, young man. No one can outrun their fate. Yeah. Like, come on. That's a little. Yeah. OK. Uh, maybe mind your own business. What kind of a thing is that to say to somebody? What are we in a movie here? <clears throat> honestly, honestly. And so Hutter arrives at work, I guess, and he immediately finds out from his coworker, hireling, real estate agent, not clear in their relationship, but uh this guy Knock who uh is a pretty weird-looking guy who does not appear to be up to anything good, because he seems suspicious right off the bat, uh, in part because of his physical appearance. He's very ugly. Yes, in a particular way. And um, he has discovered that a Count Orlock wants to buy Hutter's house. Uh, Count Orlock is from Transylvania, by the way. Mm-hmm. Not suspicious at all, you know? Yeah, and I like that he's straight up from Transylvania. Like, it's not even a... Yeah, it's not even trying to be a, like, layered knockoff. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's from Transylvania. We'll change the name of the Count, but uh, where he's from? It's Transylvania. Yes, it's Count Dracula. (laughs) From Transylvania. Anyway, well, and, you know, the thing about Transylvania, Drew, I don't know if you knew this, it's a land of phantoms. Oh, yes, it is. A land of uh, phantoms and uh, secrets? What was the other thing? Thieves. It's a land of phantoms and thieves. Phantoms and thieves, that's right. That's what it's known for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we we also see that uh, their language, uh, the the message that Count Orlock has sent is written in this, like, crazy hieroglyphics. Yes, like, uh, yeah. 
like a child's uh, pictograph. I don't know. Yeah, that that was that was fun. Maybe that's a little bit of German expressionism right there. But um, by the way, just bring speaking of uh, words and stuff. Um, are uh, the word Nosferatu? Do you know anything about that? I don't. So it's um, it is a synonym for vampire. It's uh, possibly a Romanian word. Interesting. But it basically just means vampire. But at anywho, so Nock wants to take the deal because it's good money. And, right. Uh, so that makes sense. I mean, they're they're at least his motivation. I don't know what is, what their relationship is, but he seems to be this real estate, uh, the main real estate sales agent for the area. And his motivation seems clear enough in that, hey, this is going to be a lucrative deal. Well, there's a couple of things with this. So number one is that Nock has this sort of like Renfield relationship with Count Warlock, which gets much more pronounced later in the film, where to the point where like he's gone insane and he's like trying to eat like small bugs and things and just like screaming at like, master, master, my master has arrived, that kind of stuff. But as far as we've seen, the two of them have never interacted personally, and, like, Nock has never been to Orlok's castle. Orlok has never been to this town before. There's, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me how it is that Orlok has managed to acquire any kind of, like, sway over Nock. Right, and they, if they never, we don't, we don't see them interact at all in the film. Right, and if he can like, you know, uh, do this from afar, like, just, like, take a guy who's in, like, this faraway village and control him like that, then what does he need to do any of the rest of this? To, like, why does he have to travel at all? Right. So, I, I didn't quite get that. But, um, Nock and Orlok do both ha seem to have a similar thing in which both of them are the bad guys, and both of them are very physically differentiated from the rest of the cast they're bald uh they're old looking they uh their teeth ain't so good they're ugly uh, ugly knock is obsessed with money he wants the deal because it's good money and uh this uh nosferatu his nose is pretty big you know bigger than a normal upstanding german person's nose right so that gets us to another thing about this film, which is that um, it has been pointed out that there are some uncomfortable undertones to the film, barely undertones, in the way that it uh, deals with othering people. The bad guys in this movie are very distinctly made different from, like, good regular people. Mm -hmm. And the way in which they are othered is pretty anti-Semitic. Yeah. Count Orlok in particular, they, you know, this goes for Nock too a little bit, but Count Orlok looks like an anti-Semitic caricature. He's got a huge nose and a hunched back, big grasping clawed hand, you know, hands, a lot of stuff with money with him. You know, he's like, I want to buy your property. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it's it's some uncomfortable associations there. And there's one other thing that I'll mention when it comes up that is also an anti-Semitic trope. But, uh, yeah, that runs throughout the whole film, and it applies to Nock, too. 
a little bit. So anyway, so Knox like, I think you should take this deal because it's good money and I like money. And then Otter doesn't really want to sell his house. So Knox is like, well, why don't we do a sneaky underhanded double deal and sell him those terrible abandoned shitty houses over there? I right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Hutter's like, oh, yeah, great idea. And so off he goes to uh, talk to Count Orlock about selling him the shitty abandoned houses across the way. But before he goes, we notice that uh, his wife doesn't really like it. She's kind of got, like, uh, Ellen Ellen has a, a bad feeling about this. Yeah. But he goes anyway. So Hutter arrives in the town. You know, he gets he gets the inn in the local town in Transylvania. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to stay here for a little while, and then I'm heading on up to uh, Count Orlok's castle. And everyone in the inn is just like, ooh, Count Orlok's castle. You don't know what you're getting into. Okay, go back up to your room, read the book that our uh, maid's going to put next to your bed that talks about how Nosferatu is around to pretty much be a curse and suck your blood, and mm. uh, then see how you feel. Yeah. Yeah, they 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 don't think it's a good idea. They also mentioned that the werewolf is out, so we get our werewolves, <laughs> which is basically a, a baby hyena. Dude, that was not a wolf. That was like a little fox. Right. Yeah, but whatever. Um, there is a, a thing with vampires, and this is part of the Dracula thing, where um, there's a bit of conflation with vampires and werewolves, where um. One of Dracula's powers is he can, it's not just that he can turn into bats, he can also turn into a wolf. Oh, so, this so was kind that of a, meant to be him? Possibly, yes. Huh. But yeah, so Hutter does skim through the little vampire book. I like that it's the vampire spelled uh, V-M-P-Y-R. Mm, yes. Old school vampire. Classic. And, um... He uh he he discovers that they like to live in tombs and coffins that are filled with cursed earth of the Black Death. Which okay, I guess maybe that explains the rats. Do you want to talk more about the rats? Yeah. So I mean, th- there are a lot of scenes that uh, focus on the fact that these uh, these coffins are filled with rats. Uh, there are a lot of scenes where there's just Lots of rats. And uh, now that you uh, mentioned the quote, I mean, so it's it's noted once that the rats are the carriers of the Black Death, of the Black Plague, which is historically accurate, right? So, you know, I guess they're symbolically appropriate to represent plague and uh, and the Black Death of the Earth, as it were. Rats are also symbolically appropriate to represent one other thing. What would that be? Jewish people. Right. So it is an anti-Semitic trope, uh, particularly in Europe, to associate Jews with rats. They're dirty, filthy vermin uh, who spread disease, particularly the Black Death. And you'll perhaps know from history that... um, Episodes of the Black Death tended to lead to incidents of anti-Semitic violence because it was those horrible disease-spreading Jews who caused the Black Death. Interesting. I wasn't uh, acutely Yeah, Jews are dirty rats and spread plague. They're disease spreaders. So rats 
and Jews are a very common uh, anti-Semitic trope that it also seems to exist in this movie because wherever Count Orlock goes, there are tons of rats and yep. it spreads disease and plague. So. There's plague wherever he goes. And we'll get to the plague in a bit. But yeah, so that was the last thing that I was going to mention where um, there are some uncomfortable undertones to some of the imagery in this film. Yes, your um, your uh, noting of the rats as a uh, an anti-Semitic trope uh, reminds me of uh, Inglorious Bastards, where they they are quite on the nose with that uh, comparison. Yeah, a big part of Nazi propaganda. Yeah, and I mean it's a big part of Nazi propaganda too because it had a a long and well-established history as well. So they were just kind of like playing on everything that had come before. Yeah, that's right. And this film was well before the uh the Nazi era, a couple of decades. Well, I mean, in the early 20s it would be kind of like getting started and the um the root causes that would lead to it are well established by then. Mm. It's not, not too far, far off before the ramp up begins. Yeah. So, yeah, which is not to say that that is what the filmmakers deliberately had in mind, but, you know. One way or another, it worked itself in. Yeah, Uh, it's, you know, you pick up on it. Uh, But anyway, none of that is bothering Hutter. He had a great night's sleep. He has a classic wake up. Just a nice... Exactly like that. Big old stretch. Not a care in the world. He's got his nightgown on still. <laughs> yep. Which apparently is what people in the neighborhood wear out to uh, corral their horses. Yeah. That guy <laughs> who we thought was in for a second. Yep. Uh, he heads up to Count Orlok's castle, but as with Dracula, they hit a point where the peasants won't go any farther. They don't, they don't want to get any closer to the castle. He's like, okay, I'll go myself. But then even he starts feeling creeped out, particularly when some creepy guy comes to pick him up. Yeah. Yeah. And was and, that Count Orlock? I feel like it was. Looked like him. It looked like him. He had a cap on, so we weren't entirely sure. He was kind of shrouded, but I uh I feel like it was him. Maybe. Well anyway, so we get to the castle. It's very creepy castle on a cliff. And um, we get some really intense music. I, I mean, as you might expect for this kind of film, the music sort of like tells you a lot about how you're supposed to be feeling about things. Yeah, It gets real intense for this moment because here we are. This is 20 minutes into the film, kind of roughly around where you thought we'd start getting our first deaths. And we get our first exposure to Count Orlock comes walking out and he's. He lives up to your expectations. He is a weird looking, creepy, scary looking creature man yes but not immediately inhuman like he's weird looking but not clearly inhuman yet no that's right i mean the first uh the first scene we have uh we have hutter kind of just like hanging out and having dinner with him and it's not uh it's not so suspicious right off the bat not yet. 
So act two begins and the two of them are having dinner in the castle. And this is where all that German expressionism kind of kicks in because this castle is super Tim Burton-y. Yeah. Um, I wrote down a few of the elements that I saw that made me think of it. So you've got that little skeleton clock, the really like tall chairs with the tall skinny backs, that checkerboard, that like chessboard floor pattern. Um, all, yeah. all this stuff, just it, it all, I mean, obviously it's more Tim Burton being more like this, but again, because of the order in which I've experienced these things, it all looked very Tim Burton to me. But, um, Hutter is eating dinner and he gets a cut on his thumb. Yeah, a pretty and, nasty one. Yeah, and Count Warlock has an unusual reaction to this. Do you remember what he says? Yeah, uh, something like, oh, uh, precious blood. You've hurt yourself. The precious blood. Yes. And then he immediately tries to suck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and uh, Hutter is not uh, not being uh, politely, uh, you know, going along with this. He is clearly very visibly in his uh, his classic overdramatic fashion, very freaked out about this. Which you know, I think. Fair enough. Yeah, you, realistically, if you were at, uh, you know, if your host reacted that way to you cutting your thumb, you would be a little freaked out, especially if you're in this big castle and it's just the two of you. Yeah. Um, but so, Count Orlock begs him to uh, put, put, put all that misunderstanding that we just had aside and hang out for a while. Because uh, you have to understand, I, Count Orlock, sleep all day. And am only active during the nighttime hours, so um, we'll we'll pick this back up tomorrow night. Right. Hutter wakes up a little later after a kind of weird segue where we weren't sure what the hell had just happened, and he's got a couple of bite marks on his neck. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the in the shot, it you. I thought I only saw one mark. Uh, but then we we get the exposition where he writes a letter back to Ellen explaining that he thought he saw two mosquito bites close to one another on his neck. So that that becomes very clear. Yeah, yeah, but it's mosquitoes. No, 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 no big deal. Just a couple mosquito bites. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, country mosquitoes. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're nothing to fool around with. In the meantime, they're settling up the deal finally. When Orlock catches a, a glimpse of a photo of uh, Hutter's wife, and he uh, he has a pretty strong reaction to that. She's got a hot neck. Yeah, dude, Hutter, your wife. She's she has a lovely neck. I love your wife's neck. <laughs> yeah, dude, his reaction. Enough. Dude, he says she has a lovely, lovely neck. And his physical reaction is just so over, it's so heavy, like, oh my god, she's so fucking hot. I love your wife's <laughs> neck. Oh, and by the way, I'm moving in next door. I'll see you later, neighbor. Yeah, Keep and of course, after warm he does, his entire M.O. is to stare at them from the window quite visibly all the time. Yeah. So Hutter's kind of like, yeah, all right, well, uh, pleasure doing business with you. Retires to his room. Later that night, though, he opens his door, and we get a really pretty cool, creepy shot of the Count uh, out in the, uh, you know, banquet room, just staring back at him into his room. 
and then he starts like creeping up into the room to attack him. I, I don't know if this was scary to people in the 1920s, but it was at least creepy looking to my modern eyes. I don't know what yeah, you thought. I, when you put it that way, I have to imagine it probably like there weren't really precursors to this at the time. So if you had seen that, you know, it, it, you, you hadn't seen any other horror film, really. That would have been really scary. Yeah. I mean, imagining yourself in Hutter's situation, you're out trying to do a real estate deal. You find yourself at some wealthy uh, mansion owner's uh, place. It's just him and you, and he's really creepy and grotesque. And you can sympathize with this Hutter character who's like, oh, my God, he's just staring at me from the corridor, I'm going to go into my room and pull my blanket over my head, goddammit, and I don't know if he's coming in the room and going to attack me. Yeah, it's kind of scary. It's so scary, in fact, it infects his wife, Ellen, all the way back in the home country. That's right, she feels it. And this is where she starts sleepwalking in that amazing, ridiculous, arms-out way, because she's having visions of what's going on a little bit. She almost sleeps, walks right off a balcony. Yeah. Thank goodness she's, she's saved. But, um, the, the doctor, who I guess is, um, Busker? What was his name? The guy who turns out to be our narrator at the end. That's Bulver. 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 Professor Bulver. Um, yeah, so he comes and checks her out, but he tells everyone it's fine. Just a mild case of blood congestion. No big deal. Yeah, what the fuck are you talking? This is just like Suspiria, Drew. We have another group of monsters and another incompetent doctor. Yep. How uh, how intentionally incompetent, though? <laughs> I don't think intentionally this time. Maybe in Suspiria. Yeah. But um, Hutter wakes up. He remembers his vampire book, so he goes to find the crypt, and he finds the crypt. He throws open Count Orlock's coffin, and there he is, just lying in the fucking coffin with those, like, it, it is pretty creepy looking the way he's just lying there with those dead, staring eyes, just staring straight yes. up. Yes, and the, the, um, that, just the pose that he's in with the staring eyes, and you do get the iconic, like, claw fingers. The, the position of the hands and the fingers is perfect. Yeah, 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 those long claw fingers. All the better to grab money with. Um, <laughs> Hutter runs back to his room and then looks at the window, and um, he sees Count Orlock moving in uh, Munster's-style fast motion to set up his coffin transport. Oh, yes. And, which I guess maybe is one of his vampiric superpowers and might have freaked people out back at the time because they weren't used to special effects, question mark? Hutter decides he has to get the hell out of there. So he decides to go out of his window uh, bedsheet style. He makes a little bedsheet rope for himself. Which seems, Here's my question. Yeah. It seems unnecessary, right? This is where you're going. Yeah. Why did he choose to do this? Because as far as I could tell, he and Count Orlock were the only people in this castle. Count Orlock is now gone. You can just walk out the front door, dude. Yeah. What are you worried about? No one's keeping you there. Why did you just go out the window? And he hurts himself doing it. Yeah, it's kind of a bonehead move. I don't know. It didn't make any sense to me. Well, 
Anyway, that's the end of Act 2. We start with Act 3. Hutter's in the hospital, and according to the people there, maybe turning into a vampire himself. Count Orlock has, um, is, uh, he, he's put in his Amazon order for himself ahead of time and is having himself shipped over on a boat. Uh, and this is where we start getting all that rats imagery. Yes. And, uh, some of the boat people turn over one of the, the things, the, basically a coffin full of dirt that he's sending along with himself. This is also, um, to be fair, rats and vermin are kind of associated with vampires a little bit. As is, um, you know, the the dirt, having to bury yourself in the dirt of your own grave. Right. So yeah, at, at least some of that some, is like. There's some mention of the of the earth that uh, one was buried in being kind of like a source of power for the vampire. Like he, he's not supposed to stray too far from it. So I, I suppose that might be part of this. That was never really one of my favorite vampiric weaknesses, though, that limitation that you have to, like, return every night to sleep in the, the earth of your grave. The, yeah. There are other ones I liked better. It's honestly, it's not that persistent in some of the later forms of uh, vampire lore. Yeah, the, the, there are some cool lesser known ones, like um, there's uh, the fact that vampires are supposedly incredibly OCD. So if a vampire is coming up to you and you take, like, uh, a bag of rice or a bag of anything, basically, and, like, throw it on the ground, they wouldn't be able to do anything until they picked all of it up. Right, right. And that that actually features in an X-Files episode about vampires, that one. Um, Also, vampires can't cross moving water. So if you get across a river, Mm. I don't know, I'm, I'm basically just into vampires and wanted to... Talk about their lore a little bit. I like vampire shit. Yeah, but um, you know who else likes vampire shit is Nock, who is fucking crazy <laughs> now, I guess. Yep, yep, eating bugs and whatnot. Yeah, this is him having his Renfield moment where he's been thrown into a loony bin and he's ranting and raving that blood is life and he's grabbing at bugs and trying to eat them. But wait, this wait, scene so is juxtaposed. Yeah. What brought, what, what, why was he thrown in the loony bin? What precipitated that? The fact that he's ranting and raving that blood is life and he's eating bugs, I guess. Okay. Because I thought he started eating bugs after he was in that cell. I mean, maybe he started going downhill and they threw him in there and then it got to that point while he was there. Mm. Mm. I think he he started deteriorating, getting worse as Count Orlock started getting closer. Right. But this the scene of Nock and his mental deterioration is juxtaposed with a scene that you were talking about a little bit earlier, which is um, Professor Bulver trying to scientifically look into a rational explanation for what's going on and maybe some background on vampires by examining carnivorous plants like the Venus flytrap. What was your deal with this? I mean, I just, uh, like, I guess I'm just into this kind of shit. Um, you know, uh, I'm a very big fan of the Alien series, and a big piece of what I like about this lore is the whole, like, the the inspiration of the creature drama based on actual natural biology. Like, you can, you can find creatures in nature who behave in all of these ferocious and very uh you know very scary ways 
but uh, you know, I, I just find it fascinating to contemplate our own existence in the scheme of things in comparison to you know some of the way these other organisms behave and you know you can look at things on a very microscopic and small scale and they're eating each other in all of these very savage and scary ways if you try to empathize with the fly that gets caught in the venus flytrap or the whatever the hell it is that the polyp is eating it's the most horrific thing you can imagine definitely and i i like that you bring that up because i thought it was interesting that these two scenes are actually juxtaposed with each other, the Knox madness and the scientific investigation. And whether deliberate or not, it made me really think a little bit about the kind of difference between the rational and the irrational, the scientific and the mystical. And, you know, basically like it was interesting that they were, you know, you have, this is a time period too, where I think they would have been taking this approach where it's like, we have something magical like a vampire and maybe we can find a sign like let's try and investigate it and find a scientific reason behind it you know we'll use this modern science that we're just basically coming up with now right and see if we can use it to figure that out but also you kind of see it running up against its limitations a little bit with you know the the mad knocks just kind of getting worse and worse as the approaching master comes you know well and it's funny because that this was uh this film was produced a century ago now essentially and uh the attempt to find meaning in the latest science then i mean us observing it now it's totally daft right like they 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 really they don't they don't they're grasping at at straws with uh with this attempt to try to find a, an explanation by observing small organisms it really isn't going to lead them anywhere true and yeah i mean you know it's it's, it's more poetic it's more poetic than anything else it's like it's poetic for the for the sake of the of the art of the film for the viewer definitely and, you know, I think it's true even to today that everybody likes a cool Venus flytrap shot. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. Uh, so in the meantime, as Count Orlock is approaching, a plague has broken out. And apparently it's a plague of neck injuries. <laughs> uh, well, but again, what I don't understand is that how is this uh, mysterious neck wound plague spreading if Count Orlock is locked in a coffin on a boat? Yeah, it's very bizarre. Like, you know, traditionally we're familiar with vampires as being plague-like in that you get bit in the neck, you're going to become a vampire. Uh, and, you know, depending on the story you're following Turning someone into a vampire may involve a certain ritual or another, but generally one vampire can make other non-vampires into vampires. But we're not There's really an infection element, that. yeah. Yeah, but we're not really given that. We're not really seeing the, the characters other than Nosferatu portrayed as suddenly vampiric. Indeed. Uh, there, there, does, can, there is a neck injury plague on the boat, too. Um, 
we get one of the crewmen below decks who's dealing with some kind of mysterious illness. He, in fact, sees a ghostly Count Orlock on the boat, which is a, I'm sure for the time, very cool and creepy special effect. Um, we get lots more rats imagery, obviously. And then we get the shot. The shot of uh, the Nosferatu rising out of the coffin. Yeah. I almost missed it because I was making food, but um, <laughs> I, I, I caught it just in time. I ran over and saw him rise out. It It is a cool shot. Yeah. I mean, it, even it, today, it's what you expect. It's what you would hope. And it's got some power. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, and it's scary enough it sends that guy leaping overboard to his death rather than face it. Count Orlock, in the meantime, stalks and eats the captain. So now we're in Act 4. And uh, this is where the music started to, I think, get a little over the top. Yeah. overwhelming. At uh, one point, uh, yeah, what do we have? Uh, the, the phrase I jotted down was overwhelming xylophone crescendo. Yeah. It was so intense because, like, very little was happening on screen. It was mostly just like, here's Hutter headed home. Here's the boat. Here's the beach. Here's some waves. Here's just stuff kind of like a nice montage stuff. But the music was very like, yeah. And I was just like, okay, you can turn it down a notch, I think. Yeah, yeah, like, chill out. Relax. We're, we're not yeah. there yet. Save, save it for the climax. Yeah. So, Ellen does a little more sleepwalking, and then finally the death boat arrives. Um, it, you know, despite the fact that it doesn't have a functional crew, Count Orlock, I guess, like, somehow manages to magic it into dock, get it placed. Crazy old Knock chooses this moment to break loose from the sanitarium, and then Count Orlock comes walking off the boat with his big coffin. And this shot is unintentionally very hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it is like lugging the big coffin across the countryside. It's just like, it's very awkward. <laughs> it's so silly looking. You know what it reminded me of, too, is that have you ever seen the movie Phantasm? No. Oh, well, it, it, that is a, a cult horror movie that has a character called the Tall Man who walks around carrying a coffin at one point. It looked, I wonder if they're consciously calling back to this because <laughs> it does it, look very awkward. And, and those shots where he's carrying the coffin across the countryside, God, they look like they're happening in broad daylight. They really middle of the afternoon, like absolutely. 1 PM. Yeah. It's, it's clearly There's the middle of the day. So much lighting and you can see the shadow cast by the light. That is not moonlight, man. It's it's just a full moon, Drew. It's just a full sun. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. No eclipse that day. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, fine, fine. Well, all right. Hutter gets home. And at the same time Hutter gets back, uh, Count Orlock arrives at his abandoned, rundown dump of an apartment <laughs> and uh, moves right in. No reaction to the fact that he's been sold a lemon, you know? He's he's cool with this. It just, you know. Well, because I guess the fact that it looks so shitty is kind of like, you know, it, it fits his whole gestalt. 
Yeah, it's he's it's it suits him. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, it actually kind of fits my aesthetic quite well. <laughs> wow. Um. So as he's moving in, uh, the townsfolk are dealing with the mystery of the death ship that parked itself somehow. Uh, there are more rats coming out of the ship, and then they realize, oh fuck, the ship has brought plague into our town, and they go running through the town, telling everybody, return to your homes and shelter in place. And I gotta tell you, Drew, I did not expect to find such resonance in this film to our exact experience of this moment right now. This was this was incredibly ironic that we're uh, witnessing a plague outbreak in uh, early uh, 1920s Germany, uh, where there's a shelter-in-place order and people's doors are being marked. Uh, to indicate uh, the the death toll from this plague outbreak. It was pretty eerie. Yeah. Although you did uh, rightly point out that this movie would have been made like right on the heels of the uh, post-World War One influenza epidemic. So yeah, that, they might have had that on their mind. The last, uh, the last comparable uh, outbreak to this one, the last most comparable... I mean, it was certainly one of the like biggest and most noteworthy uh, that that would be comparable to this. You know? Because I mean, the, the Black Death was significantly earlier, no? Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can you can think about things like uh, you know H one N one or SARS, uh, swine flu, avian flu, but those were also much more limited in their impact. You know, right? Um, so. As everybody is stuck in home with nothing to do but Netflix and chill, Ellen is drawn to the vampire book and uh, decides to start reading it. And she discovers that the only way to kill a Nosferatu is for a maiden to lure them outside after dawn. And uh, what I think it actually specifically says is, Maketh the vampire heed not the first crowing of the cock. Yes. Yeah, cock. <laughs> this is done by the sacrifice of her own blood. With an E at the end, everyone. Yes, blood. <laughs> sacrifice your blood. With an old, old with an E, timey, vestigial E, yes. Yes. It's awesome. So she starts thinking maybe this is how I'm going to save everybody. Because the town is being ravaged by this plague. Um, You know, they're actual like parades of coffins going down the streets and um the townspeople have had enough and they choose to scapegoat someone and that someone is knock who evidently after breaking out of the madhouse decided to just hang out in the middle of town someplace where everyone knows where he's at what the question hell mark he doing? yeah what was his yeah, plan I don't, he didn't seem to have one because he's just there available in the middle of the day and or at midnight and a mob goes after him. <laughs> we get a bit of a chase sequence. Uh, they chase him through a field, fuck up a scarecrow real good. Why? That poor scarecrow, they didn't do anything to you. And they just keep, like, the mob just keeps being like, no, wait, it's just a scarecrow. Keep going after Knock. Wait a minute, minute. Fuck this scarecrow. And then they just, ripped like, that scarecrow beating it up. Fuck up. They're, like, they're, they're carrying the remnants of the scarecrow forward as they're continuing to billow fuck forth as this unruly scarecrow. <laughs> fuck you, scarecrow. Oh, my God. 
But so, as all this shit is happening, Ellen decides to lure Count Orlock out. Because, uh, evidently, as you said, Drew, yes, he is just across the way, staring at her creepily from his window. <laughs> she sends Hutter away, and, um, she, she lures him out to come after her. And we do get a whole bunch of cool vampire, like, shadow shots here as he's stalking up the stairs to go, yeah, that- go after her. This is where the directing got kind of cool. I thought those couple of shots with the shadows, they, 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 they nailed it with those. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, um, there, there's one too, where you see the, the clawed hands start kind of like extending outward. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. It was awesome. And then a whole bunch of things happen at once. Hutter arrives at Bulver's count. Orlock is sucking on Ellen's neck. And then they neck. capture Knock. Yeah, he, he finally gets that hot neck. <laughs> oh, God. But while Count Orlock is sucking, the cock crows. Uh-oh. Yeah. Knock in his... Knock has been... The mob catches Knock, and given the way they were behaving and how they treated that poor scarecrow, I thought they would have just torn him apart right there. But evidently, the mob just threw him right back into the same cell from which he escaped previously. And uh, he hears the cock crow and evidently knows what it means because he can feel it. And he just starts being like, Master! Master is dead. Yeah, it, indeed. Because um, I don't know if you realize this, Drew, but the, all these scenes are taking place in the middle of the night. Yes. Um, but uh, once the cock crows, here comes the sun, little darling. And uh, the sun rises, Count Orlock gets caught in the rays of it, and he... So, they don't have... Uh, they don't have the special effects to do the, like, uh, Wicked Witch of the West, oh, what a world, kind of, you know, like, uh, melting. He just kind of vanishes, you know? And there's a little puff of smoke left behind. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's pretty clear that he perishes, anyway. Yeah, yeah, he disappears. Yeah. It's a little weak, though. I could have I used a little bit of melting, not gonna lie. Yeah, the SFX were not, uh... Dude, enough. special effects in this movie from 1922 suck ass. <laughs> special effects are so dated. <laughs> so, anyway, Orlock's dead. Ellen does a little bit of a La Pieta and then dies from her sacrifice of her blood to, to Count Orlock. And Hutter arrives and is all like, No, my dearest Ellen! <laughs> and then what the narrator comes onto the scene, yeah. right? And then it turns out um, we, we keep getting these uh, interstitials from someone who's sort of like uh, narrating everything that happened. And at the end, that turns out to have been Bulver, who... Uh, is looking in at Hutter crying over Ellen and then turns and looks directly at the camera and like breaks the fourth wall, basically being like, I've been the narrator all along. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling this story. And then we get a quick shot of Count Orlock's destroyed castle. And then that's the end. Yep. The end. (laughs) Oh my god. So what did you think of it when all was said and done? I mean, my answer to this question 
is answering the final question in one stroke. It's hard for me oh, okay. not to. I mean, well then, let me save that for a moment and let me um, tell you a little bit about perceptions of the film. So I don't have a lot about um, like. Well, for the budget and box office and everything on this, uh, I told you what happened to the movie. So its box office was uh, not something that we can really talk about in the same way as we normally do. Pretty so, much immediately sued out of existence, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's uh, not something that we can get into. But uh, in terms of the perception of it, so uh, it's got a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes from wow. critics. It's got an 87% from audiences. So it's a bit of a gap there in terms of what uh, critics versus actual normies think of the movie. I'm only going to quote one pro on what they thought about what they think about the film. And that's Roger Ebert. He wrote, here is the story of Dracula before it was buried alive in cliches, jokes, TV skits, cartoons, and more than 30 other films. Is Murnau's Nosferatu scary in the modern sense? Not for me. I admire it more for its artistry and ideas, its atmosphere and images, than for its ability to manipulate my emotions like a skillful modern horror film. It doesn't scare us, but it haunts us. It shows not that vampires can jump out of shadows, but that evil can grow there, nourished on death. Hmm. Pretty cool take. Yeah, I agree. I like the I, I like the way he talks about how um the vampire in this sort of conception of it is more of a, a like a, a creeping evil, much in the same way that it's like associated with a plague. You yeah, know, something well, that's like almost like Nox uh you know, that scene where Nox is obsessing over the spiders in the corner. It's a it's a creature that's just kind of been lurking there and sustaining itself off of the carrion waste and is there, but you don't pay attention to it until perhaps it's too, it's too late. Yeah. Well that being what the pro thinks. Let's turn to you, Drew. So we'll combine what you think of the film and also the ultimate question of this podcast, which is, do you think this movie was better late or never? By better late, that would mean that you think that there's something essential about this film where watching it filled in a hole in your movie watching bona fides that had to be filled, whereas never means that it's not essential. And if you went your whole life without seeing it, that would be fine. Hit me. So. In contrast to, I, I, I appreciate Roger Ebert's uh, review, and I, you know, I think that's a good take on it. I, I do agree with a lot of what he's saying there. That I wasn't, I wasn't particularly scared in the modern sense watching this, and it, you know, I, I have to uh, artistically, I appreciate that that distinction between the flashy jump scare and the kind of more psychological portrayal of what this what this uh creature was supposed to be that said um my level of enjoyment with uh, of watching the film honestly my 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 visceral impression of it through the ether and through media and and through you know just kind of osmosis of the impressions that I had of this film and what it might be before going in, 
were stronger to me than the actual film itself. So ultimately, I'm going to say never. I could have never watched this film, and I would have... I don't think I really gained any any great appreciation or any, any great uh, addition to my film repertoire from having seen it. Speaking for myself, Drew... I'm going to have to agree with you. I'm going to say never for myself as well. And the reason for that is uh, similar to how I came to the same conclusion regarding the French connection, which is another, you know, kind of great, another great highly culturally regarded movie that I said never for. Mostly because, you know, as you said, I feel like the important things about this movie are a little more um, academic and um, it is essential in the way of saying, you know, oh, yes, I'm an informed and, you know, well-watched movie viewer. Of course, I've seen Nosferatu, but I feel like the important things that you need to know or get from this movie are the kinds of things that you can get from essays and reviews and YouTube clips you don't necessarily have to watch this whole thing to appreciate those kind of more academic elements of it, about the artistry and the the legacy and the history of the film. And when I'm thinking about what's really an essential film to watch, I'm thinking more about something that makes you, where like you watch it and you feel something where it's like, I have the response like, Oh my God, you haven't seen that movie. You have to see it. Like, you know, I want to sit with someone and watch them watch it and watch them have reactions to things that I reacted to the first time. And then then I can get the vicarious thrill of experiencing it again for the first time by watching them experience it again for the first time. You know, I want to I want something emotional in my reaction to it. And this movie just didn't have that for me. It was. Yeah, I enjoyed watching it. But a lot of the enjoyment I got from watching this, honestly, came from the fact that we chose to watch it Gilmore Girls style with each other on the phone. And like Mystery Science 3000, uh, like MSDK 3000, we were making fun of it the whole time, basically. And like we had a really good time watching it, but it was because we were laughing and just hanging out. So, you know, I think if I just watched this on my own by myself, I would have taken away some, you know, points of interest and found it interesting and thought provoking, but I, I would have been bored for a lot of it too. So, yeah. So an important film, an interesting film, something that I would recommend you check out if you're interested in movies and particularly the German expressionist uh, creative movement, but not an essential film to watch. I don't really feel so a never for me too. Well, all right. That was a lot of fun, dude. Yeah, agreed. Despite everything I just said about this not being an essential movie to watch, uh, I did enjoy uh, watching it with you. So let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Hopefully it won't be too long before we can do it again in person. But if we can't, we'll do it remotely. I think this worked okay. Yeah, and hopefully if we do find ourselves in that situation we will watch something that is as uh, deliciously ironic to the situation as this happened to be i hear you loud and clear 28 days later coming up next yes oh my goodness but we've both seen it and love it yeah yeah well we'll find something 
<laughs> All right. Well, if you'd like to contact the podcast, please email us at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at betterlate underscore pod. That's it for this week. So, Drew, again, blast having you. Come back again. I love this pod. I will be back. Right on. And I will catch all of you next time. Bye. Bye.